Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm good, Anne. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. I'm looking forward to chatting about some articles. So you have an article on topical medications during breastfeeding. I do. The... um... Wonderful Philip Anderson from LactMed has come out with another article in Breastfeeding Medicine. This was in um, Volume 13, Issue 1 of um, 2018. And um, I'm trying to take your lead. I made a couple of true-false questions to start us off. Perfect. So the first one is, ointments are preferred over creams and gels when topical products are applied to nipples. Hmm. Let me to answer that. <laughs> if you want. Oh, I'm going to say topical ointments are preferred. Um, it's actually false. Oh, ointments are not preferred, and I didn't know that. That was a learning point for me. We'll get into that in a second. Okay. Ketoconazole is potentially hepatotoxic if ingested, so it should not be used on the breast. True or false? Um, I would say, I would clarify that question. <laughs> it would be okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be crazy about the baby sucking that down because of the liver dysfunction, but it would be okay on another part of the breast that the baby's not coming into contact with. How's that? I, it's true. I should have said on the nipple. Okay. <laughs> so, um, it is not an ideal, um, topical medicine to use in a place where it will be ingested by the infant. So I'm going to still call that question true. Great. Okay. Um, So just in general, most topical drugs are not absorbed by mothers to a sufficient degree to enter breast milk in pharmacological amounts. Topical products, however, can be licked off the skin by infants, transferred to the infant by skin-to-skin contact, and so we want to minimize direct contact of the infant with treated areas on a mother's skin. For the purposes of this article, Um, and just in general, transdermal patches like nicotine or clonidine should be considered systemic drugs. So they're not touched on here. So we're going to dive right into that first true-false question as we talk about formulations. Most humans have mineral oil paraffins like Vaseline and petroleum in their bodies. And because these hydrocarbons are not metabolized, they accumulate in the body fat. And it's thought that a lot of these come from cosmetics. Lactating women excrete these chemicals into breast milk. I mean, most humans have them, and so most lactating women will excrete them into breast milk. And their concentration in milk is highly correlated with the amounts in maternal body fat. While there is little that can be done to decrease this excretion into milk, the use of petroleum-containing ointments on the nipples potentially exposes infants to much larger amounts of these inert ingredients. And although the toxicological consequences of paraffin accumulation in the body are unclear, it seems prudent to limit infant exposure by avoiding ointments on the nipples. 
I didn't realize that all ointments had petroleum. I thought, you know, because when I think about ointments, I guess I think about, you know, things that are like creamy or oily. Oh, it's greasy. Greasy. But like, you could be like coconut, coconut oil or olive oil. Yeah, and so there know. are certainly um, natural plant-based oils. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to lanolin. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because what I remember from medical school dermatology was the discussion that when you're using, like particularly we talked about steroids, if you look at the same type, the same potency steroids, so for instance, example, triamcinolone, it's going to be absorbed at a higher rate in an ointment um, than it is in a cream and that they have that more, I'm like rubbing my fingers together, which isn't very helpful over audio, um, but more of that greasy feel to them. Yeah. Well, and, and we learn, I mean, I, I use that principle a lot because not only the absorption, but also, you know, whenever people have any kind of skin problem, the skin loves moisture and moisture helps healing. So it's more healing to use an ointment than a cream because creams are so drying. Um, so that's, you know, the principle that I've always based it on. So interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and it's also interesting that idea that ointments are more moisturizing because like, you know, you'd think of the difference between Vaseline and Aquaphor, which in my understanding is essentially Vaseline with water whipped into it. And some uh, like vitamins, I think, too. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it isn't necessarily the ointment part that's hydrating in that. I don't but know. Traps, we'll have to have a dermatologist phone in. But it, but it traps moisture on the skin. So like when you're trying to moisturize, you add oh, yeah, water yeah. to as the skin. Oh, yeah, as a barrier. And then, right, and then you add that as a barrier. And then it just drives moisture. Which is moisture. true. Yeah. Which is the opposite principle that I'm using when I am using um, oil-based diaper cream, right? I'm trying to protect the skin from the yeah. moisture in the diaper from touching it. Right. right. Um, yeah. So in general, water miscible products are preferred over ointments for use on the nipples. Solutions generally have the fewest inert ingredients of concern, followed by gels and creams and then ointments. Hmm. And then they commented that lanolin is similar to an ointment, but is not a hydrocarbon. It's a mixture of fatty acid esters that can be metabolized by the infant. Lanolin is not a concern for application to the breast area as long as it's a highly purified form and neither the mother or infant is allergic to wool. Next, they went into uh, antibacterials, which I would say is probably one of the more commonly used topicals that is found on the breast. So I was really interested in this area. Yeah, definitely. First, they started out talking about topical iodine, um, which is also called um, povidone iodine. Mm -hmm. And I think of immediately I thought of, you know, in surgical area prep and also those little sort of Q-tip looking packets that come yeah. with circumcision trays. Right. Um, and so they said when this is applied to the mother's skin, it can present a risk to the nursing infant. And this is when it's applied anywhere on her body. The concentration of iodine in these products is so high that even the small fraction that is absorbed can increase breast milk iodine concentration and cause transient hypothyroidism in breastfed infants. Oh my God. Are you, like what size of like how much of the body do you have to cover with iodine? <laughs> Wait for it. Because we do this all the time. Right. It's especially in geographic areas that are iodine deficient. And then he went on to say maternal exposure to um, povidone iodine near term can also 
interfere with newborn thyroid screening tests. Numerous studies and case reports have documented these effects and are in fact among the best documented adverse reactions in infants to substances in breast milk. I had never heard anything about this. It blew my mind. Yeah, that's amazing. But again, like, is it like, what if I'm just taking off like a two millimeter little ditzel? (laughs) But the other thing this made me think is, I mean, that's, I'm like going to just go on a limb here and say that's probably fine. It says maternal exposure should be minimized by using lower concentrations and applying to the smallest possible surface area, shortening contact time. And that drives me crazy. People don't ever wash the iodine off of people post-op and it's Mm -hmm. irritating to the skin Um, and avoiding repeated applications. They also said absorption can be particularly extensive with vaginal use and nursing mothers should avoid douching with povidine iodine or use of iodine containing tampons during breastfeeding, which I did not know such a thing existed. Hmm, Also avoid application to these products to open wounds. Okay, now you can say anything you want. But he doesn't talk about, well, I have to look, we'll have to look at those studies and see like to what extent, because what about an adult who just uses it for their own thyroid function? I mean, if you have like, if you're having like abdominal surgery and they, they just, you know, clean you extensively with, you know, iodine before they operate and then they don't but wake I, off. I mean, I don't know that I consider it in the, in the setting of someone who is not iodine deficient, who is transiently affected, it's not going to be as big a concern as in a neonate who's got that developing brain. Right. That's true. So they said topical chlorhexidine is a safer alternative to iodine. And then they went on to say the most commonly used topical antibacterials such as bacitracin, mupiracin, neomycin, and polymyxin B are poorly absorbed orally and can be used on the nipples as creams. Theoretically, they might disrupt the infant's microbiome, um, the um, GI microbiome, but this has not been studied. And while clindamycin and erythromycin are, or, are orally absorbable, um, they could be used on areas of the mom's body away from breasts, such as for acne. Mm-hmm. Topical um, metronidazole or vaginal metronidazole has um, not been studied during breastfeeding, and but they know that vaginal and topical administration results in only 1% to 2% uh, maternal plasma levels of those that are seen after typical oral doses. I use metronidazole orally in women when they're nursing. Yeah, and that I, I think is fine. So when you say that this is really way lower than that, I think it's not concerning. Yeah, I don't think so. Onward to antifungals. So the most common antimycotic agents present no harm to infants, even if they're ingested in small amounts. Nystatin and amphotericin B are not absorbed orally. Um, Clotrimazole and myconazole are absorbed, but extensively metabolized by the liver, and so they don't reach the systemic circulation. And actually, in some countries outside the U.S., these drugs are formulated as oral gels to be applied directly to an infant's mouth to treat thrush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, yeah, the myconazole gel, though, there was a, wasn't there a case report of the baby choking on that? Oh. Yeah, I think there was. I have not heard of that. Yeah. Was that, was it an oral gel, though, or was it some other? Oral gel. That huh. was actually, you I know, because. I learned the research. Yeah. 
Well, then they went on about that question that I mentioned at the beginning, saying ketoconazole is potentially hepatotoxic if ingested and should not be used on the nipple. Use of ketoconazole shampoo or topical use on the skin away from the breast by the mother poses little risk. Um, other drugs in this class are mostly intended for vaginal use and little is known about their oral absorption. And using topical drugs for tinea infections on the nails should um, present little risk. It also doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Gentian violet is potentially toxic to the mucous membranes and can cause ulceration or even potentially tattooing of the skin. And I did not know this, but he said it is a mutagenic and a carcinogenic in rodents and occasionally causes allergic sensitization with cross-reactions to other dyes. Although the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine includes it in their guidelines for treating Canada infection of the nipples, um, they state that aqueous solution of less than 0.5% can be used for not greater than seven days on the nipple. However, much safer alternatives are available, as he mentioned above, and it should be considered a last resort. Yeah, I don't use it on the nipples. I just think it's too irritating. But um, I, um, yeah, I've seen sores over the years. And I remember, like, back in the 90s, we there was a lot of discussion about should we even be using this because of that risk of uh, cancer. And then I think that there was more research that was published that, that stated that it wasn't a worry and that's why it kind of we started using it again. Because I remember that there was a blip of time early in my lactation career where we kind of stopped in our tracks and wondered if we should be using it or not. So, Yeah, I would say, um, I mean, I've seen multiple cases where it wasn't properly diluted. And I think that is a big concern that not everyone realizes that um, that needs to happen. And um, to be honest, I... I don't typically use it. I've used it maybe two or three times ever. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think the other thing about gentian violet is that you're, it's kind of like that theory of like, like treat what you see, but not recognizing that there's more down in the gully, you know, kind of thing. Like there's a resource, there's there's a reservoir for this yeast and it's in the gut and gentian violet's not going to help that. So yeah. um, I like to use something that's, you know, going to take care of gut flora, gut um, candida as, as well. Something systemic. Yeah. What kind of systemic? Like, you know, nystatin won't be absorbed orally, but um, it'll take care of gut oh, uh, yeast. Yeah, uh, exactly. I, yeah. As it's swallowed and travels through on its way out, it will exactly, yeah, right. be active. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Um, uh, then he touched on insecticides and repellents. Um, saying that most drugs used for lice and scabies are environmental contaminants and can be found in breast milk. However, treatment of these infestations often requires their use, Um, particularly talking about um, permethrin and pyrethrins, saying less than 2% is absorbed after topical application of these. Their rapid metabolism to inactive metabolites and safe application directly on infant's skin um, makes these products acceptable in nursing mothers. And then he goes on to mention a few other, um, I'm not going to list every single insecticide in here, um, but then mention that although there isn't much information on excretion into breast milk of insect 
direct repellents, they're generally not of concern during breastfeed. And he listed DEET and several other um, insect repellents. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're going to touch on anti-inflammatory drugs. And the bulk of this has to do with topical corticosteroids. Okay. Um, Topical corticosteroids have not been well studied during breastfeeding, and we know that only extensive application of the most potent corticosteroids can cause systemic effects in the mother. It's unlikely that short-term maternal application would pose a risk to the breastfed infant by passage into breast milk. However, we want to ensure that the infant's skin does not come into direct contact with the areas that have been treated, um, particularly with high-potency steroids. There was a um, case report where a topical corticosteroid applied to the mother's nipples resulted in prolonged QT interval, cushionoid appearance, severe hypertension, decreased growth, and electrolyte abnormalities in her two-month-old breastfed infant. The mother had used the cream since birth for painful nipples. Wow. That must have been a strong steroid. Yeah, and and I have to say, um, I have I've met a lot of people who've been using strong steroids on their nipples for a far longer period of time than I would recommend Um, and recently I've become um, a little bit concerned about some free-flowing apno in my clinical world that Ah. is like a river of apno coming from the hospital to many many patients um and and that you can make, of course, different formulations, right? So people make it with different Do you want to, do you want to define, it, define it for some listeners who don't oh, know what APNO is? Oh, yes. Okay. So APNO is an acronym to shorten all-purpose nipple ointment, which is typically an um, anti-inflammatory, usually a steroid, an antifungal, and an antibiotic um, that are mixed together to be applied to the nipple, Um Often, when it is not entirely clear what is causing um, inflammation, and I've seen different of you know different steroids, different antibacterials, and di- different antifungals used by um, you know basically people have different recipes for this depending on where you go. Yeah, I mean the thing about Apno that just drives me crazy is that we don't use that for any other part of the body. No other specialists use it. So I feel like breastfeeding women get the short end of the stick here. Like, oh, well, we can diagnose that rash on your leg. Oh, we can diagnose that rash on your scalp. Here, use this. This is appropriate for it. But oh, you have something on your nipples. Oh, just smear it with everything. You know, <laughs> I mean that is not fair. That is not clinical medicine. Women deserve clinical medicine treatment you know, appropriately evidence-based just as anyone else does for their rash. You know, I agree with you 100%. I would say that this has come, I think, from really a place of there are so few physicians that know very much about breastfeeding that they've sort of grabbed onto this crutch. And also, you know, there's this mentality of like, oh, we don't have time to figure this out. We have to fix the problem right now because mom's in pain and she's going to quit, right? Yeah. And I find that not to be the case in the moms that are, you know, coming and looking for help. It's it's like anybody else with a medical problem. They want the answer to their problem. Right. But a lot of the, but a lot of, 
doctors are referring to non-physicians, uh, non-providers even, to manage this stuff. And then the non-providers don't have the skills or the knowledge to, you know, or the ability to, to give any, to make a diagnosis and to, um, to give a prescription. And so they're, you know, th this is the tool that they have. And that, I think that's what leads, you know, it makes sense that they would use this tool because if it is possibly fungal or bacterial or, 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 um, you know, dermatitis, okay, then maybe it'll help, but then there's all this other stuff in it that's not necessary. Um, and so it makes sense that this is where we've come to, but that's, I think, because it's not, it's not wrapped in like it, you know, it's not brought in as a specialty in medicine. Yeah. The other thing that really, really bothers me, and it goes to this idea of like, who's recommending it is that, um, I see a lot of instances where it's being recommended by people who are not providers or should not be diagnosing. And then they're asking the moms to ask the OBGYN to write it for them. Right. And, and that's what's happening where I am. I'm going to get in trouble. I can just tell you right now for just spilling the beans all over here. But I mean, <laughs> really, they're all these moms who are still in the hospital who are having pain and they're being told, get your OB to give you this magic cream that's going to help with your pain. Right. And not only is it problematic the way that it's getting prescribed, but it's it's not an appropriate time frame to say, you know, that this pain has anything to do with any of those problems. Like most of the moms are having pretty straightforward latch problems with exactly. abrasion and exactly. they don't need all this medicine on there. Right. And the other thing is that I've been impressed with some of the research looking at like that whole idea of not, you know, the, the, the idea of resistance and, and uh, using something that's bacteriostatic and not antibacterial and not antifungal um, because you can create resistance. But if you use something, if you want to put something on it, put Medihoney on it, which is bacteriostatic. It's not going to cause resistance. It's safe. It's, um, you know, you can use parchment paper over it or a Telfa pad. It won't stick. And it really promotes healing. It's got that those healing promoting properties. And it's pasteurized, which is great. And it tastes good, too. <laughs> <laughs> or use silver. Use a silver dressing. Those That's anti... That's anti um, it's bacterial static. It's not going to create resistance. And so it makes yeah, a lot more sense. And there's sounds. also that question of the microbiome. Like, why am I messing right. with, we're having so much research now about like a little bit of formula is going to mess up the microbiome, but let's just give all these other drugs. Yeah. It's just crazy. And and really Medihoney is super cheap. Like you can get a nice size tube for seven bucks on Amazon. Um, and I don't know if they sell it at Walgreens or other stores, but you know, it's cheap and uh, they're not going to go through a whole tube of it. Um, and they can use it on other things too. They don't have to have a prescription for it. So anyway. you've convinced me I'm going on Amazon. Okay. Um, <laughs> so then when it comes to the lower potency corticosteroids, the hydrocortisone or even the triamcinolone, which I consider a mid potency, um, it said these should be used on the nipple or areola where, um, these are the ones that can be used on the nipple or areola where the infant could directly ingest drugs from the skin. High potency corticosteroids such as betamethasone and clobetasol, clobetasol mm -hmm. should be avoided on the nipples. Yeah, that's really strong stuff. Um, and then it talks about some medications that are primarily used for psoriasis like um, topical tacrolimus and um, pamecrolimus. Pamecrolimus, <laughs> yeah. Really 
So that was really hard for me to say. Yeah, I know. It's not been studied well. Um, But appear, why did I choose this topic? But appear (laughs) to present a low risk to the nursing infant because they're poorly absorbed after topical application. Mm -hmm. If the breast is to be treated, other drugs are preferred. Um, And then they talk a little bit about um, tazarotene and calcipotriene. Calcipotriene is potentially low risk to the nursing infant and generally considered acceptable during breastfeeding, even to the nipple area. Um, but application of the combination product and Stilar, which contains betamethasone, should be avoided. Mm-hmm. And the tazarotene is not contraindicated during breastfeeding, but experts feel it should not be used on greater than 20% of mom's body surface area while nursing because of possible absorption. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Then lastly, we've got some miscellaneous topical products, um, coal tar, which is also used for psoriasis, um, can be applied topically to maternal skin and can result in detectable pyrene metabolites in infant urine. And because of this potential toxicity in the breastfed infant, other drugs are preferable. Mm-hmm. Um, topical use of nitroglycerin has been um used for anal fissures by nursing mothers and appears to have no adverse effects in breastfed infants. However, nitroglycerin application to the nipples, which has been used for alleviation of Ronad phenomenon of the nipples, should only be used after cessation of breastfeeding. Yeah, I can imagine it can crash that baby's blood pressure. Yeah, that sounds really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um And then lastly, hair products are often um, used by mothers and they frequently ask, but um, things like bleaches, dyes, and straighteners, um, typically the exposure is brief and on a limited surface area. No evidence exists that they have any harmful effect on the nursing infant. Hmm. That's good to know. Yeah, I've gotten that question before. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to know that he agrees with what we're doing. (laughs) We're saying, go dye your hair. Feel good about yourself. Yeah. Well, that was interesting. Thanks for reviewing that. Uh, sure. that. I think that'll be really helpful for people to, um, you know, to look at and have access to. And um, okay, so let's talk about iron. Um, this is a study that was published um, in the um, Breastfeeding Medicine Journal in, uh, I think it was probably December, no, maybe November, December, volume 12, um, entitled The Effect of Daily Iron Supplementation in Healthy, Exclusively Breastfed Infants. And this is a systematic review with a meta-analysis. Um, so the, the authors here, their goal was to summarize the evidence for both benefits and the risks of daily oral iron supplementation for exclusively breastfed infants. And they wanted to look at the effects on their heme status, so like, you know, blood measures, their growth, their cognition, and if there's any adverse effects of taking iron. So just as a background, the Institute of Medicine recommends 0.27 milligrams of iron daily for an infant who's zero to six months old. And breast milk in general tends to have about about that, like 0.2 to 0.4 milligram per liter. Um, However, there's evidence that iron deficiency can lead to irreversible negative changes in long-term neural development. So for that reason, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends one milligram per kilo of iron supplementation every day once infants are four months of age in order to just make sure that they're getting enough iron. 
So these authors looked at a bunch of studies um, and they only chose studies that involved daily iron supplementation and full term exclusively breastfed infants. So they didn't include any infants. They didn't include studies that uh, looked at uh, infants who are small for gestational age or who are preterm. And the infants all like uh, so there are four randomized controlled trials, and the infants all together among these trials were uh, 511 coming from Sweden, Honduras, Canada, Turkey, and China. So kind of a nice variety cool. of um, races, yeah, and ethnicities. <clears throat> so the supplemental iron that was given was either ferrous sulfate or um, an iron amino acid chelate. Um, and the babies who got this iron, um, they were compared to controls. Um, they were they were somewhere between one and four months of age, and the average duration of time that they received iron was two to two point five months. So when they compared the infants who received iron and those who didn't receive iron, they found that there was really no significant difference in the groups for their hemoglobin, which was kind of amazing, or their ferritin. And for those who don't know what these parameters mean, the hemoglobin is basically the red cell count. And the ferritin is the indirect measure of iron stores. So there really wasn't a difference even when you give these babies iron. Um, but they had higher MCVs, which means that the cells were plumper and they had more iron in each cell. Um, so then the question is, like, does that mean giving iron to these infants, um, does it mean that they don't absorb it well? Or does it mean that they don't really take it or that they spit it out? And it's And you'd think that maybe this would be the case if, the children in the study were all already replete with iron. So then if you give someone who already has plenty of iron in their bodies, more iron, you're not going to see a difference, right? But 12% mm -hmm. of the infants in these studies um, were iron deficient at the beginning. Uh, um, and uh, the controls were 12% 12, 12 of them were iron deficient or had iron deficiency anemia. So they didn't see an improvement in that way, which is interesting. Um, they um, they also didn't see a difference in height between the children who received iron and those who didn't, but they did see that the group that had gotten iron had um, there was a negative effect on weight gain, and a negative effect on the gain of the head circumference. So the head circumference slowed in terms of the interval changes. Um, then they also looked at um, different developmental measures like mental, visual, and psychomotor development at 13 months. And they found that the children who received iron had higher psychomotor development scores, but there wasn't any difference in mental development or visual scores. So overall, what they, the authors stated is that giving daily iron increases the MCV levels, so the size of the cells, and may benefit cognitive development. But my, hmm. my feeling about this is that they don't, these studies are older and they don't, report on the information on delayed cord clamping, or I should say the early, what we should be calling early cord clamping, because cord <laughs> clamping should be abnormal if it's early, so we should be stopping early cord clamping and allow the cord to gradually stop pulsing so that that baby gets that transfusion at birth, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, just if anyone's interested, if anyone who's listening, who's listening hasn't, hasn't gone to the milkmob.org, um, and seen the clinical questions of the week, we reviewed this issue regarding uh, delayed cord clamping in one of our clinical questions of the week, which is number 15. So if you go to the milkmob.org and just search in the search button for iron, you'll that question will pop right up. 
And the, that was uh, that question was based on an article from the Journal of Perinatology in 2016 that was a review of the literature regarding delayed cord clamping and they found that delayed cord clamping improves iron stores for infants at four to six months. So I think this is a work in progress. Like I, I feel like, you know, there's still this recommendation that infants get iron, but I think that if they're, if they had delayed cord clamping, you know, there's less evidence that that's really needed. For full-term babies. For, for Oh, yes. This is all about full-term, healthy infants. And I think that's an important thing to highlight is just yes. that, you know, babies really absorb so much iron from their mothers during that third trimester that they will be deficient if they're born premature. And those babies are going to need iron um, from from birth usually. Right. And even the 35 to 37 weekers, like I will oftentimes check them if they don't leave the hospital with iron, I'll check them at like four months and to see where they're at because they also don't They'll have an extra low nadir. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the other thing that, that's that so was, fascinating. Yeah. The other thing that was mentioned in the study is that there is some evidence that because iron, um, can, because iron can change the gut microflora, you know, so iron um, is metabolized, is preferred by bacteria, right? So it helps bacteria to grow. And there was mm-hmm. a concern that maybe iron would increase the risk of GI infections and diarrhea. But they actually found in the studies that there was not an increased risk of infection with giving iron. Um, but there is some evidence that children who are given iron early have a higher risk for obesity later on. And so but then these studies are showing that there's actually a negative effect on weight gain. And so then the question is, if there's a negative effect on weight gain, does that increase the risk of obesity later? Kind of like, um, you know, those really small for gestational age babies, are they at risk for, mm-hmm. you know, weight gain later? So, yeah. so, the, so there's, it's an interesting topic. I personally don't um, supplement with iron routinely, um, but I do talk about high iron solids at six months, and I give them a list of um, what foods have what iron, and the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends 11 milligrams of iron per day in solids once the baby starts solids, and so I just show them, you know, what foods have what amount of iron, how to get that 11 milligrams per day. Huh, this is really, I'm I'm really interested, because it seems like they're is a, there are a lot of questions that I have still. I mean, about the slower head circumference growth and, right. you know, what does it mean that you've got no change in your um, hemoglobin, but you've got a higher MCV? That just, right. I think I'm going to have to think about it for a while and then right. hopefully there'll be more more research right. coming out. Well, the interesting thing is that there's only four randomized controlled trials. So it's kind of amazing that recommendations are made to give routine iron when there's hardly any research. And we're only talking about 511 infants and we're talking about these recommendations for, you know, more than 6 billion people, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, not I mean, than, well, whatever. The yeah. basic thing that I was always taught about, um, you know, breast milk versus formula in infants is that while breast milk has a lower amount, it is in a form that is better absorbed. Yes, absolutely. Um, yep. And so I wonder, you know, when you look at the different preparations that were used in this, if it made a difference. And and certainly, you know, gastric upset is one of the main side effects that I warn people about, you know, big people, 
when yeah. I'm giving iron. And so how does that play into it? How can we do, you know, if we need to give iron, how can we do it in a way that works better for people? Right, right. And that's a really good point. And I typically, when I recommend iron, um, I oftentimes will recommend using a um, organically bound iron, one that's organically bound to like liver or um, vegetable matter um, so that it's, because it just causes less GI upset and Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to absorb. So, Yeah, and older kids were often telling people, give this with, um, you know, orange juice because that helps you to absorb it and that's not happening in four month olds. So Right, exactly. Yeah, they need to take a vitamin C. Yeah. Yeah. A different plan. Yeah. So that's so maybe, you know, we'll talk about that again in the future when another good randomized control trial comes up. Awesome. Yeah. Well it's um that was good and I'll talk to you later, Karen. Have a good Sounds month. Sounds good. Have a okay. great day. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through the milkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.